This podcast is once again presented by the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Journey through Virginia's rich history and discover hidden treasures. You can learn more at virginiahistory.org. Okay. What do we think of this jungle? <laughs> I think that it looks pretty damn thick. Yeah. This is what everyone I've talked to said. Okay, so here's a path. Oh boy. I have zero mobility in these uh, waders. <laughs> this might be poison ivy, but it looks like dead poison ivy. But that doesn't mean it's not. You're listening to photojournalist Dan Hefner and my trusted executive producer Colton Weekly making their way through a dense forest. Well, here it is. Look at that. They've just found the eastern entrance to an old train tunnel in the city of Richmond, Virginia. So there's a boat. Yeah, it's not, uh, it's not uh, shallow water. That looks pretty deep. And it's freaky to hear voices. A tunnel that collapsed 95 years ago this week. What's the X-Files theme? So just how did we get here? Welcome to this bonus episode of How We Got Here. I'm your host, Rachel DePompa, and I know you are dying to know how exactly we got here. Two dudes traipsing through the woods looking for a tunnel. Look, we heard your requests, your emails, your messages asking us to do an episode on the Churchill Tunnel Collapse of October 2nd, 1925. So we're going to give the people what they want. Before we get started, our sponsors at the Library of Virginia made an incredible find in their collection that we'll be using throughout this episode. It's a radio documentary that first aired in October of 1968 on WRVA Radio, narrated by a man named Derwood Felton. We want to personally thank Kathy Jordan of the library for tracking this down and sending it our way. And also, as always, thank you to WRVA Radio, who's allowed us over these past four seasons to use some of their old sounds. The Steam Locomotive, emblem of days long past, the tradition of the railroad, the smell of coal dust, the soot-blackened faces of the railroad men, the clickety-clack of the wheels on the track, hour after hour. Before, during, and after the Civil War, Richmond remained an economic hub of the Old Dominion. Much of that was thanks to the James River. But trains and their tracks would soon begin to take center stage, and business was not showing any signs of slowing down. 
the Chesapeake and Ohio Railway, a company many today would recognize as CSX, traces its origins back to the Louisa Railroad in Louisa County that began in 1836. C&O, as it became known, was critical to the Confederacy and kept on growing during Reconstruction following the Civil War. As the railroad searched for more routes, sought to cut the bonds that choked it, talk of Church Hill and of the tunnel was heard more and more. The C&O had been lucky with tunnels and had a reputation as a tunneling railroad, and it had built a tunnel under Church Hill right after the Civil War. Work on the Church Hill Tunnel began in 1871. But as soon as shovels found their way into the bluish-green, sometimes red clay beneath the surface, trouble began. The earth would slip, slide and fall with no warning. Workers became afraid to go into the shaft. In early 1873, a minor collapse during construction prompted an inspection. Historian Edward Height describes the first omen, the first warning of what was to come. It cracked things. It dropped the kitchen of one house right smack down into the hole. It dried up every well on the hill. It cracked to the Presbyterian church over here to the point where it had to be removed. The rectory of St. John's Church went slipping into it. Bellevue School went sliding around. It caused quite a bit of havoc up here. The 4,000-plus foot-long tunnel that twisted beneath the southern end of Churchill was completed in October of 1873. The tunnel's west entrance began at 19th and Marshall Streets and ran under Churchill to the east entrance near 31st Street and the foot of Chimborazo Park. A Richmond-built locomotive was the first train to be sent through. On the hill, residents were very much aware that the tunnel was in use. WRVA engineer Mike Garthright was one of the Richmond youngsters through the years infatuated with the tunnel. He remembers going to church at 25th and Broad Streets and feeling the presence of the railroad even there. Well, we knew when a train was passing under the hill, uh, I don't know whether, I was right small, and the church would shake. You'd feel a vibration, but it didn't last long. And you just didn't pay attention to it, you got used to it. The tunnel was used for decades until just after the turn of the century. In 1902, C&O Railway abandoned it. New routes were built around Churchill rather than underneath, but the tunnel was kept open. It sits empty, dark, haunting, its musty walls dripping slime and moss its clammy floor undisturbed by man or machine. It was expected that it would be used again. It would be. In 1925, crews went back inside the Churchill Tunnel to renovate it so the trains could once again rumble underneath one of Richmond's oldest neighborhoods. Carpenters put in new beams to shore up the dripping, moss-covered walls. Laborers dig the slime and mud from around the tracks. It would be a matter of weeks before the clammy, haunting Churchill Tunnel would be back in service. CNO employed 125 men to renovate the tunnel, including a father and son duo, 64-year-old John Glenn and 19-year-old Harold. 
Harold would later have a son named Richard, who was now 82 years old and living in the Richmond area, still honoring the memories of his family members. And my father was a laborer working full for his father, which was my grandfather. And the picture that I have at the entrance of this is of my grandfather and father working at the entrance of this tunnel. In that photo, black and white, taken in 1925 by Anthony Demente, the tunnel is still open. They were working at this entrance, which is a west portal. My grandfather is a gentleman sitting on the left-hand side, and my father, who was a laborer, is sitting on the timber being cut. An entrance now sealed off because of what happened shortly after 3 p.m on October 2nd, 1925. Again, we turn to WRVA's Durwood Felton to set the scene. A steady rain fell that October day in 1925. Engineer Tom Mason poured on the steam and headed into the Shimborazo entrance. As he moved slowly through the shaft, his thoughts flashed to his daughter, in the hospital with tonsillitis, to five of his nine children in the kitchen above him on Church Hill, to his wife, waiting. It was Mason's last day on the job. A substitute fireman, B.F. Mosby, sat in the regular man's seat beside him. About a hundred feet from the end of the tunnel, he gave the signal to uncouple the cars, and he was ready to head for the outside and fresh air. The train groans, creaks, and jerks forward. There's an ominous stillness. Then the blood-blue earth begins a boiling rumble. Lights blink. Bricks crash down. A great whoosh of air. The tunnel goes dark. The fireman cries, look out, Tom, she's coming in. Tons of marl and clay crush the train and the men. The agonizing cries of the crew and the workmen are swallowed in the cracking of trunk-like timbers into slivered kindling. The very earth is shaken. And then, all is still. Richard Glenn's family were inside the tunnel, and they knew something was horribly wrong. My father and grandfather, which was uh, working with the uh, carpenter crew, were 1,500 feet from the cave-in. And when they had the cave-in, they had uh, a big uh, vibration, which went, went through the tunnel and warned them that something had happened in the tunnel, and they started to run out of the east end. They ran for it. Yeah. That WRVA engineer, who was just a boy at the time and had felt vibrations during church, was just several hundred yards away when it happened. I was on the Broad and 25th Streetcar, about 25th and Marshall Street. The uh, ground shook, you, you felt the car sway, and uh, it was just, oh, I'd say about five, six seconds. It was all uh, the sensation that you had. The mortarman stopped the car and got out and looked around. He thought maybe something was wrong with the streetcar and found that everything was all right and got back on the car and went down to 21st in Marshall and uh, there was a P-51 
people standing there on the sidewalk looking around and uh, looking excited. And uh, that he got out, the motorman got off the car and went to talk to some of them. Evidently, he found out that was when they had to cave in with the tongue. Several tons of moist dirt and clay trapped the locomotive and some members of its crew more than 40 feet underground. A few of them were not immediately killed and were able to crawl underneath the flat cars behind the locomotive and then struggle nearly three-fourths a mile to safety. Eventually exiting through the Chimborazo, or eastern entrance, they had just gone into minutes beforehand. You can only imagine their relief as fresh air filled their lungs. Remember, the train only had about 100 to 150 feet left to go before reaching that western entrance of the tunnel. But that route was not an option to escape because the opening had been replaced by a wall of earth. The fireman aboard named Ben Mosby was severely scolded by steam from the locomotive's boiler, but miraculously was able to reach the eastern entrance even though he escaped the unnatural burial of the tunnel collapse, he couldn't escape death. Mosby died from his injuries in the hospital that same night. Three men were officially unaccounted for when the initial terror of the collapse subsided. They included engineer Tom Mason and two black crew members named Richard Lewis and H. Smith. It's possible that there were more men trapped inside because casual laborers were often roaming through all parts of the tunnel looking for work. If they were without family or anyone to report them missing, they were likely forever lost within the tunnel, history having no record of their lives. Meanwhile, the task at hand to try and rescue any survivors was immense, to try to get to these men who might be buried alive, each inhale using precious oxygen each exhale bringing carbon dioxide that would eventually lead to an unimaginable death. The original construction of the tunnel only made matters worse because the walls were made up of 10 layers of bricks. Richard Glenn describes the first rescue operation to try to save these trapped men. What happened was they used a, a steam shovel first to dig into the side of the Jefferson Park Hill but the steam shovel was making so much vibration that it caused later cave-ins, so they had to stop using it. Several days passed with nothing putting crews closer to the earthen tomb below. So the railroad went to plan B. They constructed three shafts, rescue shafts. One was over top of the locomotive, and one was on the west side of the locomotive, and the other one, third one was on the east side of the locomotive. They estimated that they would have to dig at least 55 feet to reach the bottom of the tracks that were underneath the locomotive. These rescue shafts from above were approximately six feet wide, enough to be able to send a man and his equipment into the unknown below. Finally, just before 10 p.m. on October 10th, eight days after the collapse, the shaft right above the locomotive was 44 feet down when it hit the coupling that connected the train engine to the first flat car. It was that night one family would find closure. 
the uh, construction foreman, Mr. Moore, went into the shaft and dug a hole in the flatbed car and uh, went underneath the train and then went into the train cab. Noticed the uh, body of Tom Mason still sitting in the chair. He was blocked by the reverse lever that was up against his chest. Pinned to his position by the large lever and not reached for more than a week, Tom Mason either suffocated or was scolded to death by the steam that powered the machine he operated, his wife now confirmed as a widow, his nine children losing their father. They didn't remove the body that night, which was the 10th of October, but they called in the coroner who had inspected the body. And the next night, uh, about 24 hours later at 9 p.m., they, uh, they used acetylene torches to cut the back lever from the body of uh, Tom Mason so that they could remove the body. Uh, my father went down into the shaft. With the help of another laborer, he removed Tom Mason's body from the chair and placed it on a horse, which raised the body to the top of the ground surface. My father located the lantern that belonged to Tom Mason and he brought it up to the surface. And he laid it down, which he thought was a safe spot while he continued to work that night. But when he came back after working, the lantern was gone and he never did locate it, the lantern again. A Richmond relic, this lantern, lost to history. Recovery efforts continued for the two other men who were believed to be trapped and killed by the collapse. But the bodies of Richard Lewis and H. Smith have never been found. And the CNO Railway deemed the train's removal too expensive and dangerous a project, meaning those men are presumably still entombed beneath Churchill with the locomotive that led them to their death. An investigation would find several issues that could have led to the collapse. Water constantly seeped into the tunnel from the clay above, something you can still see and hear today at either entrance. During the renovation, some of the wall foundations were dug up and not immediately replaced, causing walls to sink and weaken. The walls weren't supported with braces the way they should have been. All of these problems came together at the wrong time, part of Richmond's history that remains buried beneath Churchill. Though the story has been unearthed through generations of families with loved ones who were there as it unfolded. You were right there. And it looks a lot different from the photo that was taken of my father and grandfather and the workers in front of the tunnel. What do you think that people should take away from a story like this? Well, I think they should remember those uh, that were killed, like Tom Mason and his family, Ben Mosby and his family, and the other two gentlemen that were never found, Robert Lewis and uh, H. Smith. They should remember them and their families. In 1926, the Churchill Tunnel was sealed at both ends, a final resting place for man and machine. Today, one side sits among private property belonging to an apartment complex. The other is hidden within dense woods, long abandoned, braved only by those who know where to look. Durwood Felton with WRVA said it best in 1968 when describing the collapsed tunnel then, which is how it remains today, 
a mile-long mausoleum. Just think trains used to drive through here. <laughs> so you might be able to get in there, but you won't be able to get back out. And that brings us to how we started and how photojournalist Dan and executive producer Colton got to the eastern entrance of the tunnel. Your other path might have been better. We wanted to see what it looked like today, and after a short, steep hike through thorns and garbage, they found it. Open, but the bottom of the tunnel not visible beneath a few feet of dark, dank water that still drips from the tunnel walls and ceiling. That eerie sound amplified by the couple hundred feet that the tunnel extends into darkness beneath Churchill. Look at that. The arch of stone on the outside is covered with vines and overgrowth. A spider. The water from within the tunnel making its own near stagnant stream, creating the smell of a swamp mixed with the scent of decaying garbage. A blow-up raft sat at the entrance with a paddle, almost daring anyone to venture into the darkness to find their way to the sealed wall of the eastern end, an entrance to hidden history. Yep, okay, we found it, let's go home. Okay, fake out, double ending. I had to go all Peter Jackson and Return of the King here. I promise, done now, sort of. Thanks, Dan and Colton, for traipsing through the woods for me. We want to once again take a moment to thank the Library of Virginia, Kathy Jordan in particular, for finding that amazing WRVA documentary and sending it to us. Of course, we want to thank Richard Glenn, who first reached out to us about this story in the spring of 2019, meeting up with him at the entrance of the western end of the tunnel where his father and grandfather were photographed was an amazing experience. This was actually the first time Richard ever visited the tunnel. We took photos for him, and we have a story on TV. Just head over to NBC12.com. Also, shout out to the atrium lofts at Cold Storage, who allowed us to bring Richard to the western opening of the tunnel, which sits on its property. And you told me on the phone, you said you hope to make it to what anniversary? To the 100th anniversary, which is, uh was five more years, 2025. I'm 82 now, so I don't know whether I'll make it or not. <laughs> and we would be remiss if we didn't mention late Richmond historian Walter Griggs Jr. Because much of what is known today about the Churchill Tunnel collapse came from his decades of hard work, including a book he authored called The Collapse of Richmond's Churchill Tunnel. Sadly, he passed away at the end of June, 2019. Richard Glenn got to meet Griggs and talk with him about his family's involvement with the collapse. And we think a moment they shared that Richard told us about is a good place to end this bonus episode of How We Got Here. When he autographed my book, he said, keep the members alive. Richard, keep the members alive. That's what I'm trying to do right now. <laughs>